Hi, everyone. It's me, Ben. Um, a warning about today's podcast. It uh, is the last one that we recorded at the ATX Television Festival, which I've been talking up to you guys for the past few weeks. Um, and I'll tell you, this ATX Fest is really fun. Uh, for more information about it, go to facebook.com slash ATX Festival. Uh, we're planning a big uh, benefit for the festival at Largo at the end of October, where we're going to get a lot of uh, people from TV that you you know and love to come out and kind of do things that you don't always see them do, like sing or play the banjo or, you know, play a theremin or something. Uh, so look for announcements about that. Look for announcements where? I'll tell you where. Look on facebook.com slash panel. Like that page. Uh, I update it a few times a week, and uh, so you'll always know what the podcasts are, what the live events are coming up, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, or follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker, um, and you know you'll you'll get the hilarious things I say as well as uh, updates about the things I'm working on. One of the things that I'm always working on is the Thrilling Adventure Hour, which is a stage show in the style of old-time radio that we do once a month at Largo. Only in September, we're doing it twice. Uh, on September 8th, we're doing two shows. The 7.30 show is sold out, but the 10 p.m. show still has a handful of tickets. We have some amazing guest stars as well as our amazing regular cast who include Paget Brewster and Paul F. Tompkins and Busy Phillips and... Uh, all kinds of people you know and love from television and film and cartoons and things. Um, our guest stars, the ones we can talk about, are Linda Cardellini, uh, David Anders, who I guess is on uh, Once Upon a Time these days, but who we all know and love from Alias, um, Keegan-Michael Key, the star, co-star of Comedy Central's Key and Peele, uh, a lot of really awesome, hilarious people. If you are a fan of Wilfred, you will love it. If you are a fan of Parenthood, you will love it. Those are two guest stars that I can't talk about. So check out the Largo website, largo-la.com. Go to their calendar, get tickets for the 10 p.m. show. You won't be sorry. It's a really fun show. Um, All right, so this panel is the Stages of a Writing Career panel from the ATX Television Festival. Uh, Here's what happened with it. Uh, It's a little messy at the start, Um, the first voices you hear are going to be Evan Miller or Hardy Jansen. I apologize to those guys. I don't know which voice comes on first. Uh, there's no real moderator to this panel, so it's a much looser conversation than probably you guys are used to hearing. Uh, but there's some great stuff in it. The, the three main panelists besides Evan and Hardy are Noah Hawley, David Hudgens, and Kyle Killen, all really smart, thoughtful guys uh, who kind of talk about their journeys as television writers um, I think once it throws to Hudgens, he introduces himself and then Noah uh, and then Kyle. So you'll, it'll be pretty clear uh, after a little bit who is speaking. Uh, also, you know, you probably know some of the stuff they've done. Uh, around the 30-minute mark, when uh, Hardy and Evan ask for questions, there's a minute or so pause. Um, don't worry. I think it's just they didn't pick up the question from the audience. I know they picked up some of it. You'll figure it out. Uh, you guys are smart. Um, so they're, they're, look for that pause. Anticipate it and enjoy it. And, uh, you know, maybe think something about what you've heard. Um, uh, and then you kind of hear the end of the question, and they're very clear about what the question was and address it uh, for the last 15 minutes of the episode. Uh, it really is a, a very interesting conversation that goes on, and uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, as ever, if you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps us out. Uh, you know, the more reviews we get, the higher we go in the rankings, which means we get sponsors, which means um, we get to continue to bring you this podcast. Um, so please leave a review on iTunes. And also, you know, let me know personally what you think, either via Twitter or by liking the Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash panel. Uh, we have some really fun stuff coming up. The live panels have started up again. We did two in August. We're going to do two in September. Look for announcements about those on the Facebook page and via Twitter. And um, we'll continue to bring you these fun panels. It's It's been a year now, so we're really having fun doing them. And so I thank you guys for listening. Enjoy. Now entering Nerdist.com. 
It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Yeah. We were talking kind of a second in the green room. That was one of the things I was going to... was interested to hear what you guys thought is... so. We've done feature stuff, and we're now transitioning to television. So, if this is stages of a writing career, like, how did you like? Did you guys come up through the normal system of, you know, in a writing room, and then moving up the way, or did you guys come in kind of? We're coming in the back door, I guess, so to speak. Was that you guys' experience, or what was your experience coming up through television? I'll go first, and some on the end. <laughs> um, I'm David Hudgens, and I came at this a uh, kind of a weird way, which is I had a career before I was a lawyer. And I decided I wanted to be a writer, so um, I became a writer. Uh, and um, I guess the way I got started was, I, you know, when I started writing, I went holed up in a, in a cabin in Tennessee. I read every book I could about television writing. Um, I watched a lot of television, and, um, and I read a lot of scripts, and I banged out my, uh, my spec episodes, which at the time were Six Feet Under and A West Wing, my two favorite shows. Uh, and I came out to L.A. and just sort of started hustling myself around town, which was very hard to do. But I ended up at a birthday party for a kid, and I met a guy named David Kissinger, who at the time was, uh, was a an executive at NBC. I was just fascinated with him because it was Henry Kissinger's son. Uh, but my sister-in-law, who was in the business, said, give him your scripts. Give him your specs. This is how it works. And I, you know, I didn't want to be that guy. He was like, hey, I've got a script. It's nice to meet you. But she said, no, stupid. This is how it works. So I gave it to him, and he read them, and he liked them, and he got me a meeting with an agent. And, um, and I, got, uh, I got signed by an agent on April Fool's Day. <laughs> I, th- I literally thought I was being punked or, or joked on. And, um, and then I got an interview with Greg Berlani, who did a show called Everwood. Um, and I hit it off with Greg, and I got hired as the baby writer on that show in the second season. So that's how I got into the business. Um, and I don't think it would have happened if I hadn't had two good spec scripts. And when I meet with younger writers, that's what I always tell them. that the way, You know, you got to have those good spec scripts so people know you can write an episode of television. So. And just give them to Henry Kissinger's son. And- yeah, and just and meet Henry Kissinger's son and give them to him. <laughs> what he didn't say was at a random party. Yeah, how you get the invite to Henry Kissinger's son's birthday? But know the right people, I guess. I don't know. Now, did you guys do the the spec script route as well? Like a, no, as I mean, a spec if, pilot or is if there is a formula. Script? I don't think that I stuck to it because <laughs> I started as a novelist and and and. Uh, and published a couple of books, which is a whole other uh, panel. Um, and then... Um, Could you guys introduce yourself? Sh- oh, yes, I guess we should do that. I'm Kyle Killen. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm Noah Hawley. Uh, and um, so I wrote uh, a feature, because I, I was living in San Francisco, and I was part of a writer's collective called The Grotto. We had 21 writers and filmmakers. We had office space in an old dog and cat hospital. And, um, and I knew a guy there who was doing some feature work, and, and I would help him break some story. And so I thought, that seems fun. I should do that. And I came up with an idea and, and, and wrote a feature. And, and I happened in my... Um, for my books, I was represented by ICM, so I ended up with a film agent. So do that. Get a book agent. Uh, that, yeah. And... Um, and then, you know, the, my agent said, well, people read your script and they like it, they want to meet you, you should come down. So I thought, okay, I'll come down. And then she said, and they're going to want to know what you want to do next, so if you have any other ideas. So I was like, okay, I need some more ideas. And then on the plane down, I came up with something and took some general meetings and had a good elevator pitch for something and sold a pitch in that first series of general meetings. And, and then um, my first novel had been optioned. Uh, by Paramount and so suddenly I was a screenwriter because I'd told a pitch so then they had a terrible script from somebody else so they hired me and then suddenly so suddenly and then the the script that I wrote the spec sold so like within three or four months I had three or four projects and was sudden suddenly a screenwriter uh, and then TV just came about because my motto is what else can I get away with and and uh, so I started writing um, and selling pilots and because I came to it from outside TV because TV is there's a sort of ladder that you climb but they always look creatively to outsiders for the big ideas 
So I was able to come in as a, as a book and feature writer and just start selling pilots to people. So at a certain moment, I uh, um, figured if one of these pilots that, that I wrote ever got produced, I should know how to produce a show. So I moved down to L.A. and I went to work on a show called Bones. And I was there for two seasons. And then the third season, I got my own show. So, um, so it's not a formula. I, didn't, I don't know how to tell somebody how to do that, but, uh, but that's what I did. Kyle, I believe you've had the uh, the dream of anybody who's kind of come up in Austin trying to get into the industry. You're actually still in Austin. I right. don't know how you've accomplished that, but everybody I know wants to do everything from here, never have to actually move to L.A. or New York or anything like that. How have you actually done that? Uh, I don't know. I, I went to film school in Los Angeles, and uh, I had a professor who his, he said... Uh, writing is like a heroin addiction, and if you can quit, you really should. So, <laughs> so I tried to do that um, over and over. So, uh, you know, I, I worked in Los Angeles and, and uh, interned and did all those things, but I, I got really burned out. And for me, LA, you're also just faced with the numbers. You know, everywhere you go, everybody wants to write, and you realize there aren't enough jobs for any of you. And it's really hard to look at all those people and say it's going to be me, not you. Um, so uh, I left and got regular jobs, and um, and so I was actually doing. Um, I used to build laundries in prisons, and that's what I was doing when um, I wrote uh, a screenplay. And was it called Shawshank? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's heavily autobiographical. Um, and I made a bunch of copies of it and went to L.A. And, and I had a friend who was a reader and also, like, kind of just this really uh, ballsy girl who we, her idea was, like, she wrote me a cover letter for the script that said, you know, we had financing and just all just crazy lies. And um, <laughs> we put it on the script and we went to all the agencies and I would just choose names at random, like, not agents who seemed like, you know, they were running the place, just somebody in the middle. And, um, and I'd write the cover letter to them, and I drove out there and spent a week dropping off, like, a hundred scripts. And I was a really bad actor. Like, when I would walk into the front desk with a script, like, pretending to be a courier, like, if they asked me anything, I would totally lose my nerve and be like, <laughs> I, I, never mind. And then my friend would have to go back and actually um, give the script away. So I left all my scripts and I came back and didn't really think anything of it. And like six months later, I got a call from a random agency who had the cover letter had long been separated from the thing. And they read it, liked it, and called the number on it. We're like, we don't know where this came from or who you are, but do you do you still write? And I was like, of course I do. <laughs> so. Um, but it's like, a, the, you know, just to thematically bring it back to stages, like I remember thinking that if I could just get an agent, like I'd be set, like I'd, you know, throw a party and be, it's just, it's, um, it's, as soon as you get there, then it's like so, suddenly you look at the next step and every step is, is crazy. So in TV, you know, I wrote tons of, I wrote West Wings, I wrote, I wrote everything, um, specs and pilots trying to get a TV job, and I just wanted on a staff. Like, I would have killed for a job on Bones. And, uh, you know, I had some meetings and so on and so forth, and I, I, like, could not get a job in TV, so I wrote a feature, and uh, I wrote a script called The Beaver that ended up getting made. And, like, the difference between the before, what you were saying about, you know, coming in from features versus trying to work your way up the bottom of the ladder in TV, it was... It was absurd. It was like no one would talk to me when I just wanted to write TV and I had just done everything you were supposed to do to write TV. But the minute I'd written the produced feature, it was like, sure, what are you thinking? It it seems like that's kind of flipped from, you know, what, 20 years ago, whenever TV and film were just so separated, where it was almost one, anybody in one just kind of despised the other. And now it's just you know it's kind of merged as you know if you that's what Noah and I were talking about is well and the feature business has contracted in, in, in such a way that, that you know it's like Disney makes two to four movies a year and and they develop two to four movies a year and so you had this massive glut and writing staffs used to be better bigger mm-hmm. and then we went on strike and then the revenge yeah. happened so now there's just, <laughs> now there's just like 
all, everybody in features is trying to get into TV, yeah. and, and all the TV writers can't get jobs because the staffs are smaller, and it's... Uh, so good luck out there, guys. <laughs> Just out of curiosity, how many, how many folks in here are, are trying to become writers, whether it's television or film? Yeah, not very well, many. That's good yeah. to know. <laughs> Just everybody. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I, it's interesting, like you're saying the stages. Like, okay, so like, oh, by the way, Evan Miller. Sorry, I know we're supposed to say who. He's our moderator. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm your moderator now. Um, good job. Uh, <laughs> um, it was like, okay, so... For us, like, okay, we sold a couple feature films. It's like, oh, well, you guys should get in TV. That's where writers have more power and where, you know, that's, you make more money and blah, blah, blah. And have you guys started to find at any level is, like, a little more freedom to where you're like, okay, well, I, this is exactly what I want to do, so you can kind of do what is actually your fancy? Or is it still kind of a bit of the grind of, like, oh, okay, well, this is what somebody wants, so I should kind of, you know, tailor myself to that? Or has it been, you know... Well, I think for... I mean, I can't speak for anybody else, but I I exist now in a, in a purely development-oriented world. Like, um, I, I was on a staff for two years. I created my own show, um, and then I I closed a development deal after that show ended to write a couple more pilots, one of which got turned into another show. And now, after having created two shows, um, basically all I do is write pilots until somebody makes a show for me. So... On the one hand, I don't seem to have a trouble making those kinds of deals. On the other hand, I don't really have any job security at all because right. I'm a freelance writer, basically. And, and, you know, like I've already closed one deal to, to write a pilot um, this year, but it won't really pay me any money until the fall once I start actually writing it. So, you know, you I live in a very kind of crazy you know, some months you can pay the mortgage and some months you have, you're scrambling. And even though, but, but at the same time, the trade-off for that is I have a ton of creative freedom. I don't have to, you know, I mean, I get phone calls from my friends who are on staff on a daily basis of how, the, you know, it's like, can you choke out your showrunner and still not get fired? Like, you know, people, you know, I don't have to do that. So that's the, that's the trade-off is I live in a high-risk you know, business, but the trade-off is I get to sort of be a creator in, in a way that's very satisfying. Have all three of you all written on staffs before, prior to I actually producing? Yes, I have. What did you I find did. that experience to be like? Um, I can't, it's, well, it's I mean, like I say, I, I started out as a staff writer, which is, it's staff writer is the, is the low end of the totem pole. Um, I started out as a baby writer and then did three years on a show, sort of working my way up, and then I went and did Friday Night Lights and sort of kept going. Um, then I created my own show and I left Friday Night Lights and ran that show until it got taken off the air uh, after six episodes and then went back to Friday Night Lights as the showrunner. So I went, so I sort of, I did. I came up the traditional staffing route and there's this thing um, that they have for TV writers called overall deals where, and I don't know, I mean, you can probably tell by the tone of my voice, I'm a little <laughs> conflicted about it. I mean, on the one hand, an overall deal is basically the network buys your ass for two years, typically, and they own you, and they say, all right, you're going to sign you to an existing show, and you're going to develop for us um, in the interim, and I'm now, um, that's what I'm doing. So I, in addition to, I mean, I, I work on Parenthood, so I go and I, I work in the room every day with the Parenthood writers. Uh, but it's now the time of year, so next week, as a matter of fact, it's like, all right, what do you got? What's your new show? So I'm developing and writing on a show at the same time, which works great for me. I've got four kids, um, one of whom is about to hopefully go to college. Um, so I need, you know, I need to work, and I like to work. But it's interesting hearing you guys talk because, to me, having come up straight, you know, through TV, you know, the feature world is sort of the ah to me. You know, it's, it's like the grass may be always That's greener. Funny. I don't know, but. Um, that's been my experience. Well, and, and that's something uh, we were talking about earlier is, do you, do you, have you guys found in creating the shows that you have that you need to, because in, in the feature world, like, you have to consider marketability unless you want to toil on a very low budget kind of level. Because um, nobody makes, what you were saying about exactly. Disney makes how many movies, like, and, you know, nobody's making a majority, like, it's, you know, small, small pool. Right. Yeah, but do you guys, have you found that you've had to con consider, uh, you know, in terms of what you're creating, the marketability of it for television. Yeah, there's. I mean, that philosophically, um, the network model is really a what's the poster model mm -hmm. now. And and 
when they're looking at shows. I mean, I, I've um, I've taken to saying recently that I want Jason Kadem's career because he seems to manage to create shows for a network that just leaves them on no matter how many people watch them and, and allows them to be good and, and 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 in some ways that should just be the television model which is they're great shows and, and everybody loves them and, and uh, but what you find is you know that they're buying they're putting dinosaurs on Fox and they're putting nuclear submarines on you know, rogue nuclear submarines on ABC, and and you look at them and you go, not only don't I know what season three is, I don't know what episode fifteen is. Like, what what? How is this a television series? And so, you know, you get into this longevity issue that I think. Um, so and so there's there's that kind of gambling addicts buying philosophy of just like we just want it to be bigger and we need it. You know, it's and yet. Um, you can't really promise that any of those shows are going to last any length of time. Um, So, you know, it's to go in and sell them ideas now, it's it's a lot about you know, what's the high concept? Even in comedies, you know, I I, in this last pilot deal that I had, you know, I flirted with the idea of doing a half hour, because it's like half the length. You don't have to write. It's like (laughs) And, uh, and, you know, I went and, you know, I talked to them about an idea, and they're like, it, we need a bigger concept. And you're like, what it's like everybody loves Raymond. It's like a family, and they're funny. Like, how, how does it, I mean, what is modern family? Is there a concept other yeah, than that? Sure. I mean, so anyway, I don't know if that answers your question. No, no, no. Well, yeah, the reason I asked you is because uh, when we started, we worked uh, for, what, was two years, something like that, on uh, our first screenplay, uh, which was just, you know, it was a kind of a, by autobiographical thing for a growing up in a coming of age story growing up in small town Texas and we wrote you know we got the same feedback over and over and they like they loved our characters our dialogue the general uh, idea I think the exact feedback he's going for is this is really good no one's going to watch this there's yeah. going to be like four people in the theater no, exactly. we can't make this movie that's impossible yeah and so we wrote we kept you know, toiling at it, toiling at it. 20, I mean, we did what 20, 18, 20 drafts, something like that. And then we just realized one day that you know we've got to pick something that's a little bit more marketable because uh, again, nobody wants to make it. So what's the next thing we do? Which is the first thing we sold a sex comedy, right? You know, I mean, and that's the first thing they sold. I was just so like when it came to you know because obviously Lone Star and Awake, you know, you've got a little bit more sci-fi aspect on on Awake. Lone Star is kind of like your traditional drama. But you got, I mean, I know, I know it didn't last as long as it should have. It was a good show, but, you know. How it did, had a hook, though. Yeah, it had a yeah. kind of a... It's a double life thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a cable-style show that, um, for whatever reason, that year, um, Fox was interested in trying a cable show on network. Like, we literally had a conversation where they were saying, you know, Breaking Bad would be bigger if it were on Fox like there's no reason that good shows have to be just given dramas have to be given to cable we should win back Mm -hmm. some of this territory so um, so they developed a a pretty you know specifically cable I mean it had a a very morally questionable anti-hero at the center of it and um, it was super serialized and like everything that you expect from cable drama but that you don't get very much you know beyond Things like Parenthood, um, there there isn't a lot of that left on um, network drama, mm-hmm. and um, and it got canceled after two episodes. So mm-hmm. it worked out well. Did you come up with a antihero when you were in a prison laundry room, or was that like <laughs> different? Most of my role models. In that <laughs> but I think the thing that you know we should be talking about is that the real marketing that has to go on is you marketing you, right. and this, this idea that that. If you don't define yourself and what your brand is as a writer, it will be defined for you. And, and you know, I, for whatever reason, I've had the luxury of not really being pigeonholed as a writer. I can go from creating a sort of quirky New York cop show to doing a, a sort of bigger uh, fake documentary about, you know, character drama to, you know, to, diff- to different things. But I have friends who... You know, who did one year on a cop show and went to work on another cop show, and then was wanted to go out and develop something that's not that. And and the market said, "Well, you're a cop show guy," right. because 
because they just looked at his resume and they said, you're a cop show guy. So if you, if you can define yourself, especially in TV, as a character writer, then that will tend to transcend those genres. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough thing to do because in the beginning all you want is a job. You just want to sell a movie or you want to get on a show. And, but, you know, when I went on to Bones, I had already published two books and had a movie made and other deals in place, and I realized very quickly that I was having a career while everybody else on the staff just had a job, you know, and that they were... I mean, it's kind of fascinating on a TV staff when you see um, people who are at high levels. It's like in high school, the kids who never learn to read, but they just matriculate every right. year. You know, it's like right. people who get good at hiding in a room and letting the room break a story and then Take having somebody time. help you with the script. And then now you're a supervising producer and now you're a co-EP. <laughs> and you're like, how is that possible? There should be like a test at the end of every year. <laughs> Make sure that you actually deserve to graduate to the next level. But, uh, you know, I, I think as, as, ever, as you think about your career, you have to think about your career. You can't just think about what you're doing right now or what you're thinking about doing next. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a joke that me and a bunch of my friends have that in Hollywood everyone fails upwards so it's like I was trying to be an actor that didn't work out and so I became a casting director right. and you know like oh I was going to be a writer but then I realized I know people with some money so I became a producer and it's like you know all the way down the line a lot of times it's like well you know you're especially like I know I'm sure you guys the same thing where it's like you start getting notes from people that you're kind of like oh didn't wouldn't you have known like shouldn't you already know that that note wouldn't necessarily work because you know I mean there's a lot of that once you fail upwards and then you have the power and you say oh okay well here's what I think should happen yeah everybody wants to give notes but if you you know it's I mean I, I, when my first show uh, didn't get a second season I said there's a proud tradition in this town of failing upwards and I want in um, <laughs> you know and and Someone said to me, there's, there's, there are worse things than, have created, than having created the show that everybody loved that got canceled. Like, you know, that potential where you define yourself as someone who, who has a strong voice, who has a real point of view, you know, who's, who's maybe the market didn't particularly respond to your show, but, but the, the industry does. And, and so, you know, you, you buy yourself a certain um, amount of time in a career mm-hmm. once you get a show on the air where people go, well... You know, now he's in a, he's certain in another league, so you know you can move down again. But right. but uh, one of the reasons I was really excited about this panel was the was the fact that whenever I used to go to, uh, uh, or I still do go to, uh, you know, film festivals, television, any kind of festival, and there's always panels. You know, it's really cool to see, to see you know Quentin Tarantino talk about something. But when you start trying to get to the point of, okay, so how did you actually get to where you are? It's so far back, he doesn't even remember, but I feel like, you know, especially, we're not even there yet, so, but you guys are, but it's not that far, you know, since you kind of had your little break. You know, what would you kind of... Well, let me just ask you, just the, since you're closest to just yeah. having started, how did you get from where you were to where you are today? Well, and I think the main, well, one of the main things is there's a, well, you just keep at it, number one, and don't ever stop. And then the other thing is... Um, there's a quote by a guy who like started was part of the French Revolution was like audacity more audacity still more audacity and it's like that was I think one of the biggest things for us was like whenever we I, I went to UT Hardy went to UT we came writing partners here we moved to LA it was like okay well you know we didn't know anyone we didn't have an agent we didn't have anybody who was there to make that first step so it was all a matter of you know spit glue and then pushing you know being willing to go okay here you know here's our script here's our thing you know and we then started to pick up people and pieces along the way and then realized okay well we need to do something that won't just get industry people to like it but someone who will actually make it and pay us for it because that was a big thing was like oh we write we write we write but it hadn't been commercial yet and so that was then the other thing and now it's finally to a little bit of a place where now people are kind of which is its own animal, telling us like, "Oh, we want you to do this. This is how you can, you know, better you brand it, yourself did you just and all go that to kind parties of parties." Until you met well, we met a lot of people. Or? Most everything was through work. Like I was an actor before. Hardy was an actor before, so we met several people through that. And then um, there was one of the biggest things that happened is there was a director um, who we did a movie with, and we'd had a, an original script that we'd done, and um, 
he said, oh, I'll have an entertainment lawyer, which is one of the big firms in L.A., Bloom, Hargott, and Teamer. And, and he was like, oh, my lawyer, you know, he, he should send some, some producers. And I don't even think he read it. I think he was like, well, I'll send it to some people, and if they like it, then maybe I'll. And he sent it to people, and they liked it, but said, oh, we don't know if we can make that. And then having his representation, then things kind of branched yeah, out like, from there. Yeah. But we needed that first, like, real in. I mean, I don't know if you guys all had to find that same thing, but like, I think everyone has some like some way that you you know you got to have that meet first one break. person that then all of a sudden you. Do you can feel like living in Los Angeles was essential to you getting that first break? Personally, I do. I, I mean, I tried to be an actor here, uh, got almost ten years, and and a writer, and I I kept. That's why I was asking you that question, just because I kept kind of convincing myself that I you know I, if I worked really hard and I you know and just got a good, really good product that that was enough. But I soon realized that, you know, for me at least, that it was if I wasn't where those people were to give that to and be able to meet them on a personal level as opposed to simply a business level, uh, you know, just you know, going out there for an actual meeting, but rather meeting somebody at, you know, at a party, at a lunch, at, you know, at some random thing. Uh, that's when you can actually get get that personal kind of you know, conversation going where they're not just you know, interested in your script, they're interested in you. You know, and people do. I mean, the lawyer that he was talking about, he just saw something in us. We had no nothing, no, no reason for. You know, this is the same guy who repre- you know represents like Scorsese and Stallone and people like that. And every time we, every still, every time we have a meeting with them, I'm like, why are we in this room? I don't understand this. But uh, but he's been. He was that one person. You know, everybody always talks about how you know I love to get out of L.A. because the people there, blah blah blah. That's the kind of person that we've met who has just been incredibly loyal for absolutely no reason to us. And, you know, I personally couldn't be more grateful for it. Um, but that was, the, that was our one little break. That was our biggest, yeah. Yeah, and sure. it's, everything's kind of you know, just germinated from there. So, yeah. Well, but they need, they always need new voices. They always need, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, because there's so much ageism. In Hollywood, like people just get older, and then they need new twenty-year-olds to come in and write sex comedies, and you know, it's, it's like it's you always feel like you need them more than they need you. But the truth right. is, they need agents need more clients, managers need more clients, lawyers need more clients because you actually generate the money mm-hmm. for them. And and uh, the thing that you learn pretty quickly is that you just you have to be a self-starter because. Yeah. I mean, I can't really think of a job that an agent has gotten me. You know, it's um, they love it when you just keep turning out good scripts, and they love it when you met somebody at a party that that said, "Send me something." Right. And you know, they they get they love follow up calls. Yeah, they love they do. <laughs> That's the thing. It's not so much. It's amazing. It's like, oh, well, I just have to follow up. Oh, of course, they yeah. do. And I, I have so, so many friends in the business who complain so much about their agents and how they don't return their phone calls. And I'm like, I try never to call my agent, you know? Mm-hmm. If I have something to tell them, I'll send them an email because they're just BlackBerry addicts and they'll respond and, you know, usually in five minutes. But if you want them, and then if you continue to call them and harass them, you become that client that they don't right. want to call back. It's a very weird thing. When I sold my, when my first novel was optioned, it was optioned by Patrick Stewart, had just signed a production deal with, with Paramount, and, and uh, um, you know, his wife was the, ran his company, and, and she says, she called, and we're so glad that we were able to get this book, and we can't wait to meet you, and I was like, they can't wait to meet me, and they could wait, they were happy to wait to meet me, but, but um, uh, you know, I got into a situation where the publisher... At a, you know, just a couple of months before the the pub date, they're like, "Well, you know, we really like the book, but we're not going to print this number of copies. We're going to print fewer number." And I was pretty bummed out. And the producer happened to call me that day and said, "How's it going?" I was like, "Well, kind of bummed out because they're not going to." And my friend was like, "Why did you tell them?" <laughs> you know, in Hollywood, you always have to say things are great. You know, everything's the train is going. If you want to get on, you know, there's this weird. As an artist, you don't really realize that there's this business thing where it's mm-hmm. you, you when people say how are you you say fine thanks for asking like it's not mm-hmm. they don't want to know that you're not having a good day or that <laughs> and god forbid they should know that you failed in some way or there is know. a level of sales yeah that definitely has to go along with it yeah and as a writer that's i mean even 
I feel like even when I'm running a show, 80% of my job is sales because mm-hmm. the network's always calling and they, they always want you to be up. You know, they always want you to be saying, this, this, I'm so excited to send you this new beat sheet for the next episode because it's so great. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's a crazy thing that you're, you, even while you're working, you're selling what you're doing. So, well, one of the things that, you know, we've kind of realized as of late is, just, you know, whether it's features or television was, that you know, just have as many ideas as you can at any given time. Uh, you know, I don't know if that changes once you're actually, you know, you've created a show and now you're working on. It. Do you even have time for that? But especially with four kids, I can't even imagine that. Put them um, to work. They have ideas. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Could you tell your kids be like, no, if you no, want the living hell out of them? Yeah, um, yeah. Tell them if you want your allowance. To, give to me, me it, the hard the hard part about writing for me is writing. I mean, you know, it's a pain in the ass to sit down and write. It's a job for me. I mean, maybe maybe other people. But but you have to do it. So you can be um, somewhere and have an opportunity to meet somebody. But if you don't have something to show them, mm-hmm. it's you know. I mean, how many times do you meet somebody who says you're a writer? Oh man, I had this great idea. I've always wanted to write, and I, I, I always, right. really well write it. <laughs> right. You know. And so the the hard part of the job is the actual sitting down and doing of the writing. But once it's done, if it's good, I, that <clears throat> that to me is one of the good things about the writing gigs I do feel like for the most part obviously there are exceptions it's a meritocracy I mean talent will out if you can write and it's on the page somebody's going to read it and say well I don't know who this person is but this is pretty fucking good I want to meet him so um, but you know <laughs> the actual process of when you don't feel like it of forcing yourself to sit down and, yeah. and write something and maybe that's why I gravitated towards television because you don't have a choice. You know, you're feeding that machine. Those scripts have to come out, right. regardless of whether or not you don't feel like writing them. So, um, not, which is not to say I'm not trying to say it's a bad job. I'm just saying that it is it is work, and you do have to, you know, put your ass in the chair and write. My one wife once griped that I. She said, "You get to be creative all day long," and I was like, "At, at the barrel of a gun, you know." <laughs> literally, I mean, to make it in TV, you have to be. You have to write fast, and you have to be a great first draft writer. Like, because like there's no time the to, you know, <laughs> yeah, there's no time for, you know, I mean, a lot of TV episodes get written in 48 hours, you know, and if you're, you try to give people 10 days to write a script, and then the network throws the script out, and then you've got 48 hours, you got, you know, the weekend to write a whole new script, and, you know, I'll look at my schedule. On a on a day, and I've got two hours between four and six to rewrite an episode, and I have to write, rewrite it in two hours. That's what I have. It's so. a good training, whether you know. I would say whether you're doing features or television, is just every once in a while, just give yourself a week to yeah. to complete to start and then complete something. Like yeah. well, so much of it's problem solving. Like right. oh, okay, I have this. Oh, that'll work. But I have to solve eight problems in order to make that work. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes less writing and more. How do I solve all these problems that were thrown yeah. at it? And then if I solve all those then it's written right you know then I fill in a few little things and yeah. I'll, yeah should we open it up yeah, yeah. who has questions okay. questions yeah. anyone yeah go ahead you know we've talked some about how kind of landscape is is changing whether you come up from staffing and you know now it's possible for writers never been on staff to be brought in on a development meeting off of a spec pilot mm-hmm. um but you don't know what you're doing because you've never been on staff so what I mean when you're there what what are you pitching that script? Are you pitching yourself? Or are you pitching other ideas you have when you come in just to a, a production company? To like a first pitch meeting? To you know, if they've read a they read a pilot, oh, but they don't seem to be saying, so tell us, you know, the next ten episodes. They mm-hmm. they don't really seem to be want to be sold on that particular show. Yeah, they, I mean they, they probably hang out. it's those are just called general meetings right. and they've read something, they think you're talented, they want to get to know you and what they really want to I mean that's the worst part. Like you know, he's saying you you have to have um, you have to have the material, but the, the real secret is that you have to have the material, and then you have to be ready to answer the question, "What do you have next?" Because right. usually the first piece of material. I mean, when I wrote my spec episodes of things, I was positive that when they actually got it to the show, they'd be like, "Well, guys, this is the first episode of next season." I mean. <laughs> But those never get made. Like what they, what they think is, there's a hint of interesting ideas and talent here. So, what else do you have? Is really what those meetings are about, and like getting to know you and seeing if you know you, um, you have areas in common that are of mutual interest, and and it's kind of putting a pin in it 
for the for the future. So being prepared to talk about stuff you're very excited about working on in the future or next or what you're planning to write next. I think is um, I mean it's both good for you just to be planning and preparing that and that's really what the purpose of those meetings is. Yeah, you're not in a general I would say unless they think you have some ability. Uh, so that's already that's already there in terms of now it's a question of do you have you know what are your ideas now and then coming up. But I would say generals, I don't know what you guys think, but they're I mean they're really about selling yourself because I mean, put yourself in their position. Do you want to deal, like if you're a diva, if you're an asshole, do you want to de- deal with that every single day, 18 hours a day, you know, for however many seasons you would be lucky enough to have? Yeah, you, you, have to, you, have to be good, you have to be good enough to get in the room, you have to be good in the room, and you have to deliver when you leave the room. And, and you know, Hollywood is a lot like high school. It's a popularity <laughs> contest, and, and you're always amazed at these multi-million dollar decisions that get made based on who they want to hang out with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or like, that you know... Ask Lindsay Lohan. Well, or, you know, or who's the handsomest writer, you know, who they want to give the, right. the deal mm-hmm. to. Or, But, you know, it is... It, it's sales on, on every level. I mean, the script should sell itself because it's that good, but then when you go into a room, they want to feel like... You're a dynamic and funny, and and they like you, and and they're excited to hang out with you as you know when you develop something or know, you spend a lot of time together. And I think then, it's almost as important as the as the running. I can't tell you how many writers I've just you know run into in L.A. Yeah. That, that they'll straight out say you know you know when we talk about like the business aspect they're like oh I don't really like the business part of writing. Yeah. Well, then how do you ever plan on getting anything right. made? And I don't then it's called that. a hobby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's also, you know, when I'm staffing a show and, you know, I get the samples and I read scripts and I think, oh, I should meet this, this person because I like what they write. And then you get in a room and, and it's like, oh, okay, um, you know, can I be trapped in a room with this person for eight hours a day? You know, <laughs> and I like you because, you know, because you're you, and then I like him because he's him, but I can't put the two of you in a room together because right. you're so... So there's a chemistry to casting a room as well. So, you know, it's it, it's good to just have a sense of who you are as a, as a writer and, and what you want to do and just convey that to them. Yeah. Oh, uh, is there a proper etiquette to asking someone to read your stuff because you don't want to come across as, like... Crazy right <laughs> uh, Wash their car first. Yeah. Like, do something. <laughs> yeah. I think ask once is yeah, the. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I ask once and be just so. I used to be really bad at saying, well, I don't know how you want to put it. I said yes all the time, and um, I would get myself in a lot of like messy situations because when something isn't good, there's not a good way to say that to somebody. Mm-hmm. But here's a sure sign that somebody wasn't um, in a position to, to ask you to read something. When you've had it for a few days and they're like, ah, so did you read that yet? Because I rewrote this scene and it's like way better. Than, like that thing should be polished like a Ready diamond. You know, you find yourself with Kissinger's kid, like you give him <laughs> the gold. But like don't waste it before that. Don't right. ask until you know when they read this, this is the best I can possibly do. And if it's really the best you can possibly do and it really is amazing – so he said it is a meritocracy. A lot of people will say no, but you'll get it in somebody's hands, and they'll look at it and say, "This is real." Like this person. And has it. it's one shot, and like sometimes it's like five pages before it's like, "Oh, this isn't." And they, oh, you yeah, know, yeah. so like you make sure, absolutely, make sure it's it's gold before you hand it off because one, you'll never get the chance again if they don't like it, and you know, two, you don't know how many pages they'll turn. And know? I'll say this to, to also keep in mind: chances are, what you think is gold. From the you know producer or executive level, probably in. That's what we had to learn. Like I said, twenty drafts of one thing, and then we basically went back in a cave for four months and went went to our own you know uh, story structure college and trying to figure that out because that was our problem. We didn't know how to write. We thought for sure after twenty drafts we know how to write a script, but that wasn't the case. So don't yeah wherever you are is wherever you are. Get it as good as you can, but. Once you give it over, actually listen to those notes. If they are actually taking, you know, because whenever I give notes to anybody, it really upsets me whenever they just throw them off. It's like, well, what? You know, I've got a lot of stuff to do. You know, it took, you know, I took my, my time to both read your script. And I, when I give notes, I give pretty extensive notes. I'm happy to sit down with somebody for hours and talk about their stuff. 
but if it's just you know sloughed off, it's like, oh, well, I don't want to do it like that. Well, it's like, well, I'm not telling you how to do it. I'm just telling you how I thought it. In, <laughs> you know, in television, as you said, you were hired as the baby writer. I mean, the expectations for a staff writer are different than they are for a co-executive producer on, mm-hmm. on a show. And, and it, the great thing about the TV business is it is, it is a, a mentorship. I mean, you yeah. are your responsibility as a showrunner is to make your writers better and prepare them for the next stage of their career and, and to try to make showrunners out of, out of them so that they can go on and... and you know, people do it for you, and you should return the favor um, when when you're the boss, which you all will be, which is so great. <laughs> and, but to, to truly answer your question, you know, how do you ask? It's just like dating. You just have to ask. Yeah. <laughs> you're never going to have a date if you don't ask. Either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of number of scripts, uh, we want to find an agent, and we're thinking, okay, how many do we need? We've got about six right now, and we're thinking, you know... Less than six. Out. For television or yeah. film? For either or. Okay. You need one. You, well, you need one. It just has to be amazing. What's, what's the greater probability of finding a good agent, one that'll want to pick us up, you know, and where do we look for one? Hmm. It's, it's the hardest question that gets asked at literally yeah. every sort of fest. Anywhere you gather writers and people who want to write. Like, that's why agents never come to these things. That's right. That's right. Exactly. so true. I mean, the truth is it really, you could have a hundred. It'll be when one is amazing and gets you hired, they may never look at the other 99. They'll ask you about number 101. So you need one that, like they said, you count on somebody that you... Work up the gumption to say, would you would you mind please reading this? And they say yes. They're probably going to read the first ten pages, and they'll know in those ten pages whether or not you can write, whether or not you're ready. That's what you need. Yeah, ten and five is, I think, typically the rule. First yeah. ten, last five. You know, Gavin Pallone is who's a sort of infamous manager writes a column for the New York Magazine now and he wrote one which was about who actually reads in Hollywood and the answer is nobody because everybody all the agents they're assistants and they have people who do coverage and and, you know so you know the those are the people you need to make friends with is all the readers because the, you know because right. it's not like the agent is actually going to read, read it, yeah. the material which is demoralizing I think for for um, for, for writers but um, you know Kyle had a thing he said on a panel I was on with him which is like Hollywood is like it's like a castle that has no door and you just keep circling it looking for a way in but the flip side is the minute that you're in everyone's so happy to see you they're like where have you been and this is great and you're like well if you put a door in you know it would be a lot easier so you know it's the chicken and the egg the way you know the way to to get something made is to get something made. I mean, mm-hmm. it's... it's yeah. but like the good news with that and what they were saying about living in Los Angeles and I think is that it's not... You don't need to be at a party where you're next to like Ari Greenberg. You no. need to be at a party where it's the guy that just got promoted out of the mailroom to the lowest level and he's writing coverage. That's the guy that you're like, would you mind reading my script? And he will probably say yes and he has tremendous power because it's just that first person saying... I think it's okay. And then it goes up yeah. a level and it goes up a level. Those are the people that will get you your job. You, you probably will not get a job being at like an Oscar party and handing it to Aaron Sorkin. And he's like, and, my God, where have you been? Right. right. <laughs> and the lower level people too, like they need good things. Like they need to be able to hand their boss something. So like if you're, let's say you're an assistant, right? Well, you need to be able to hand your boss good stuff that you found from the, you know, the slush pile, if you will, that you're like, oh, look what I found. And he goes, oh, wow, that's really good. And then he turns around and sells it for, you know, a million dollars or whatever. And it's like, oh, now they look so good, you know, as opposed to you reach a certain level and it's like you're not the one as much looking. Like, you know, you have less people to impress. There's always someone to impress, obviously, but their job is to their job is to say or the, uh, the, the assistant's job is to say no. The producer's job is to say yes, because nothing's getting to them that it wasn't supposed to have been vetted. And a perfect example of what he's talking about, is a friend of ours is uh, was the writer of Saw. And another friend of ours actually was the person who provided the coverage on set on that. Went to the, produ- the producer he worked for at the time and said, "You have got this is a mate. You have got to make this." They passed on it. And <laughs> to this day, he's like, you know, if that he's working for somebody else now, he's like, if that producer done that, I hmm. you know, I wouldn't be living in an apartment in West Hollywood. I'd be up on that hill in that huge ass house <laughs> as a producer on a, you know in the and if you guys I don't know if anybody's a Saw fan. That movie's made over a billion dollars worldwide, and it's seven movies. Wow. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> uh, right. I saw somebody over here had 
their hand up. Is there something that you know now that you wish you knew when you first started? Yeah, I mean, I think I started with that story of my friend saying, why would you say that? You know, I mean, I think that you have a private face and a public face, and, and, and you, you know, I, I think you, you put your heart and your vulnerabilities into the work, and, and then when you go out the, to do the business, you have to be a business person. I mean, you have, to, you have to sell yourself, and you have to, I mean, you have to have the confidence to make them feel like you have confidence. I mean, that's... Because they don't want you to be squirrely and insecure, you know. Char- even Charlie Kaufman, who's made a career off of seeming to be insecure and squirrely, is like, you know, I would imagine he's kind of the opposite of that if he's, you know, if he's had the career that he's had. So, I'm trying to think of anything that I would. I mean, I one guess more. Well, just to answer one other part of your to, to your question. I've really learned how much rewriting is important, just over and over and over again until you get it, you know, get it right. And you know, like we just completed a, a feature literally the day before we got here, and it's out to our friends this weekend, the people that we trust, to be just you know, horrifically honest with us, um, because without that, we can't you know get it ready for for actually a producer who is going to be horrifically honest with us, whether we want it to or not. Just easier to take from friends. Yeah. Yes. Hi, um, I'm just wondering what you guys think of web series and it, 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 if they're good enough, they have better, a good production quality. If it's a way to get into a staff. Uh, well, you, you guys might know more uh, staffers. Well, quickly because we have to sure. wrap it up. Sorry, yep. um, you know. That is the amazing thing about this moment in history is that you can make it yourself, and it's in some ways the best testament is that you can make a, a short, um, you know, humorous web video, or you can make a web series, and and that stuff does translate and and does, you know, does get picked up, um, you know, so it, in some ways, it's. It's better to make something and put it online for everybody to see than to write a script and put it well, in the mail. With the advent of cheap people, technology, so, what yeah. you're doing is you're creating content. Right. You yeah. know, it's great if you had $100 million to have awesome production values, but at the end of the day, if something's funny, I mean, how many people have seen something on Funny or Die that looked like it was made yesterday when people were drunk right. you know, for 20 bucks? You know? yeah. <laughs> but those people get, end up getting signed by WME the next day for right. some reason. It so. Does, doesn't work as well So, with yeah, just keep making that stuff. <laughs> Uh, I think web uh, webisodes, web, web series, generally speaking, are kind of in their infancy. Nobody quite knows what to do with them yet in Hollywood. Yeah, they they they'll like you know um, they'll buy the concept and then try to turn it into a normal television show. But I don't. I, I think web series, series kind of have a different edge that nobody's quite figured out how to market yet. Yeah, I, it, it, it's just a matter of time though. That, you know, there's whole you know buildings full of people trying to do that right now. So yeah, Great. Anyway, thank you guys. Thank you guys so much. Now leaving Nerdist.com.